Hello, Corner Kick fam. We are back with the Corner Kick podcast. I am joined by Nathan Strauss and Caleb Rhodes. This is going to be a bit more of a somber intro than we are usually accustomed to, and that is because we are about an hour removed from witnessing uh, what was a really scary and terrifying scene in Copenhagen uh, during the second day of the Euros. It was Denmark and Finland, and in the 43rd minute of the game, Denmark's Christian Eriksen seemingly collapsed on the field. Uh, the referees and players noticed it immediately, and he was uh, immediately tended to by the medical staff and was stretchered off the pitch following 10 minutes of really scary, confusing, and harrowing scenes. Uh, I'm going to give you the updates that we do have. About half an hour ago, UEFA sent out a statement that read, Following the medical emergency involving Denmark's player Christian Eriksen, a crisis meeting has taken place with both teams and match officials and further information will be communicated. The player has been transferred to the hospital and has been stabilized, which is incredibly, incredibly good news. Probably the best news that we could receive at this time. And it seems like Denmark is, er, it seems like the Denmark FA have confirmed that Christian Eriksen is stable and awaiting further examination uh in a local hospital so that is the information we have this time and we've also just received an update that the denmark versus finland match is set to continue uh, at 8 30 denmark copenhagen time so in around 20 minutes to when we're recording this podcast at 2 12 p.m eastern standard time here uh, on the east coast of on the east coast of the united states uh guys caleb i'll come to you first uh, this, to me, was probably one of the more scarier scenes I've ever seen, I've ever witnessed, uh, not only watching soccer, but watching sports. Yeah, just take, I don't know, take take me through what you were you know, thinking when you found out what happened and what caused this game to be postponed. Yeah, so I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even watching this game and then I saw your guys' texts and then saw what happened and it was obviously a very scary moment. Um, you know, it's not that often that people collapse on the field. It's not that often that, you know, super fit 29-year-old athletes collapse on the field. And so, you know, it, it's a very shocking moment. And you could tell on the faces of all the Danish players that it was it was a lot to take in and credit to them for forming a kind of human wall around him while the medics were treating Erickson to uh, kind of guard his privacy. Um, but I think at the end of it all, as you said, this is probably the best outcome we could have had from this moment. And I wish Erickson and, and the rest of the Danish national team um, to, to feel better and, come back stronger in the future. Yeah, I think it's pretty shocking because it seems like cardiac events in like on the field during games are really uncommon. We should also say that we don't we don't exactly know what happened yet, but just going off of like similar circumstances, you know. Yeah, like so I remember like Fabrice Muamba um of spurs in 2012 i think um like i remember his 
there's a really good documentary done about it and his heart actually stopped for 78 minutes but a doctor in the stands managed to basically save his life and then obviously like for me um it sort of brings back memories of api nuri uh who like in a preseason game wound up collapsing and because of sort of inadequate medical assistance in the mountains of austria and sort of at the stadium um did not end up recovering um and so it's just very scary to see um and definitely best wishes are with him and and his wife and family and I'm, i don't know how i feel about the game being resumed the release from uefa said it was at the request of the players um i'm not entirely sure about that but uh props to the danish fans as well for sort of seeing his name in the stadium and uh for all of their support too yeah, I think piggyback off of your point, Nathan, the important thing to note and the thing to take some sort of solace in is that the level of medical care at these games at the highest stage of the sport is incredibly, incredibly good. And you were able to see that, you know, medical staff were able to immediately get to Christian Erickson and begin uh, applying treatment, what looked like CPR, chest compressions. And I think they were able to, it wasn't a case of, you know, we were waiting for him to, you know, be escorted somewhere to get treatment. Uh, He was able to get treatment in the moment. And it looks like he has been able to go to the hospital in fairly quick order to receive, you know, further medical evaluations and things like that. Yeah, no, I think this is obviously a really good look for for the medical care. And I'd also, I think Nathan, you mentioned, you know, the Danish fans. Uh, chanting his name, but it's I think important to note too that the Finnish fans were also chanting his name, and so it was a a nice moment of coming together um, in support of Christian Eriksson. I think Nick, you talked about how like the game is going to resume or, or restart at the request of the fans. I just don't know at the request of the players. At the sorry, at the request of the players. Um, I just don't know if you're a Finnish player or a Danish player, how you possibly do that. Like, I mean, this, this podcast will come out after the game has finished, but I just don't know. I I can't get into the mindset of what these players must be feeling, but I I can't imagine it's such that they're ready to play, you know, a a do or die international tournament. Right. And I was also thinking about, you know, Belgium and Russia is the other game that's slated for today and Romelu Lukaku you know, the talisman for Belgium is Christian Eriksen's teammate at Inter Milan. Jan Vertonghen and Toby Alderweireld are both of his ex-teammates from Tottenham. And like, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't not, you know, just the, the, the turmoil that I was in just watching this on my television screen thousands of miles away versus like being someone who is like a teammate of this person and part of like a, a chosen family to this person and like knowing that this happened just a few hours before you have to go and do your job uh, and represent your country on like one of the biggest stages in the sport is just like unfathomable to me. I think that's, that's an excellent point, Caleb. Yeah. And also like Harry Kane canceled his press conference today for England, um, you know, out of respect and also out of things he was feeling. And as you mentioned, Nick, like all these players know each other, like Italy's in this group, Several players on the Italian national team also play with Christian Eriksen at Inter Milan. Like this, I feel like will have ripple effects on the sort of men- mental states of players on most teams in the tournament, I would have to think. 
Yeah, and I think there was a really good point that I saw made by one of the good soccer Twitter accounts that I follow that talks about how like these players really need a rest. And we, you guys sort of talked about it a little bit on the on the pod that you guys recorded last week. But the idea that players, and obviously not to speculate on the nature of the injury, but like all injuries are going to be more prevalent, especially given the fact that they're going into this tournament like two to three weeks after the conclusion of the regular season and with the Winter World Cup coming up in, you know, 110 degree plus weather. Like it's not really a hospitable environment for elite athletes who we all know are already like more susceptible to um, specifically cardiac injuries. It does sort of make me rethink the need for tournaments like this, or at least the need for tournaments like this to be played in such close proximity to the end of the season. Yeah. So with all that being said, you know, we send our, our thoughts and prayers and hopes and love to Christian Erickson, his family um, his wife, his teammates, his ex-teammates, uh, anyone affected by this, the Finnish team, obviously, and, you know, we'll await further news on this situation. But uh, right now we're going to take, you know, a brief pause and we're going to bring you uh, the rest of your regularly scheduled corner kick. Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. I am joined by two men who did not open up a massive European tournament by playing in front of a packed coliseum in Rome. It is Caleb Rhodes. Hello. Yes, I did not do any of those things, but I enjoyed watching the game yesterday. And I'm also joined by Nathan Strauss. Hello, hello. Gentlemen, we are here... Uh, Euro 2020-2021, or the Euro 2020s as we dubbed them on this podcast, began with some incredible scenes at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome yesterday. We had Andrea Bocelli singing a little Nessun Dorma. We had, you know, the disembodied head of Bono <laughs> and U2, along with, you know, some European DJ that I forget the name of. I think this was Martin Garrix. I don't know. They all kind of are interchangeable <laughs> to me. Um and then obviously we got things started with Italy versus Turkey, which was set to be, I think, probably a really interesting clash. You know, Turkey is a team that many people pegged as a, a quiet team that probably could go far in this tournament, just given the talent that they had. But while um, while La Donna Immobile was being sung pre-match, there was a different Immobile getting it done on the pitch, Caleb Rhodes, in the form of Chiro Immobile and this rampant Italy team under Roberto Mancini. I think constant pressure was the theme of the day. And also, I think a very un-Italian brand of fluid attacking football, which I think really caught a lot of people by surprise. Yeah, I won't I won't give, you know, Taylor Twelman and John Champion a ton of credit for the commentary yesterday. Um, but I think one of the comments they made early on about the fact that, you know, we're we're used to the Catanaccio style of Italian football, the chains, the heavy defense. And while the defensive bedrocks of Benucci and Chiellini have seemingly been here forever, it was really in the midfield and up front that I think this Italian team shone. I, the first half was a bit cagey, but still Italy put up like 10 or so shots. They just couldn't really get them on target. But in the second half, Berardi, Insignia, Immobile truly, truly came to life. And I think, Nick, you, you had pointed out that you thought this Italy team was, you know, a bit of a, a dark horse contender. And I think they are, they're galloping into the lead right now. 
28 games unbeaten. They haven't conceded a goal in nine games. This was the most goals they've ever scored in a game at the European Championships. I think that was the stat that was being bandied about on ESPN yesterday. They're still missing some of their best players like Verratti. They got young players off the bench like Chiesa. I'm starting to buy the hype. I really am. So I'm a little, I, I'm not buying the hype just quite yet. Although it is interesting that uh, Gigi Donnarumma, it looks like is about to sign with PSG. Um, and he probably should have, could have completed that medical and negotiated the contract <laughs> in the first half, given the amount of the lack of action that he was seeing on his side of the field. Uh, such as yeah. uh, Italy were in that first half and the second half, to be fair. Yeah, but and, and the fact that Mancini wouldn't let him go to sign the contract, which seems to be a theme now um, that, that national team managers aren't really let, comfortable letting players go. But yeah, I mean, this this Italy team is more complete. I think they've rebounded well from arguably the lowest point in their country's history in the last 35 years in the soccer world. Um, and it's a new generation of players, aside from Chiellini and Benucci, who are doing this, um, you know, like there's the days of Buffon and Pirlo are, are very clearly over. And I thought Locatelli played incredibly well. And he had a, a, a season that was very positive, despite not putting up big goal scoring numbers, but he really bossed the midfield. Well, um, he's perfect for that role where he doesn't have to be a pure defensive midfielder, but he doesn't have to deal with, um, you know, all of the attacking duties. So I'll see, I mean, Italy's group is comparatively fairly neutral compared to other groups. You know, Switzerland and Wales are both good teams, but not teams that Italy would be, like, they should be winning these games, but it wouldn't be shocking if they dropped one to Switzerland, for example, who had a, a goal probably wrongly disallowed earlier today. So I'm not totally on the Italy hype train yet, but uh, two matches to go and and, and and we'll see if you can bring me on board. I am all aboard the gondola of success. You know, the small <laughs> boats in the Venetian Channel or the large, massive boat, as Caleb indicated, because I think that Italy are no longer dark horses coming into this tournament. I think this game has firmly rooted them in a contendership position. Uh, Caleb, uh, Nathan, you pointed out Manuel Locatelli, and yes, I think he had a splendid game, keeping things ticking over in the midfield. But another player who I think completely elevates his game when he puts on Italy's shirt is Jorginho for many of the same reasons just keeping Italy in constant possession almost you know every attack is filtered through him and another interesting aspect of this team is that there are some like unheralded players who have you know maybe tried to become stars in Syria maybe uh, players like Domenico Berardi who have made moves to Juve and it hasn't really worked out for him and then he's gone back to Sassuolo and done really 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 well there and I'm glad like those players are finally getting the recognition that they deserve as well as you know the player that we highlighted in our podcast a few days ago Chiro Mobile who has an incredible track record at club level but I think his uh, I think some Italy fans are skeptical about his potential to deliver on a national team stage and he really allayed those fears with a, a terrific performance leading the line and the experience of, of a front three of Insigne, Immobile and Berardi all three who are incredibly technically gifted but also like have a shot on them have a pass on them Insigne is one of the best in the world at cutting in um, and, sh and taking a shot first time as he demonstrated with his goal I think 
you know, Nico Barella had a terrific game. You know, Chiellini and Benucci have over 200 caps for this team between them. Spinazzola at left back was incredible. His link-up play with Insigne throughout this match was unbelievable. I think there's a lot to love about the balance of this Italy team and just the way that they're able to formulate fluid wave after wave of attacks. And maybe, you know, I think Turkey were were pretty awful. It looked like they just kind of got stunned and they didn't really know how to respond. But I think the blueprint is there for this Italy team to succeed in this tournament. Yeah, and I think it's important that we highlight that this Turkey team is not, on, at least on paper, totally devoid of quality, right? Their center back pairing, Demiral, who plays for Juventus, and Kaglar Soyuncu, who has been excellent for Leicester this year. They had three players in the starting 11, Selek, Yazici, and Yilmaz, who just won Ligue 1 with Lille. They got Hakan Chalhanoglu, who was playing a kind of like cam, second striker kind of floating role. Like this Turkey team is not, filled with like total randos and players that play just for like Fenerbahce or Besiktas. They have, you know, players that play in top five European leagues. And so I think that only makes this Italy performance way, way, way more impressive for me. No, yeah, I completely agree. I I also think, you know, the blend of experience and youth in this team is something that a lot of teams in this tournament don't necessarily have. I think we're going to see like a lot of established professionals play, you know, perhaps their last roles involved in their national teams. Italy are, you know, one of the either they're one of I think they're one of the younger teams at the tournament, but they also have some of the players the most experienced, Nathan. I think that's going to get them very, very far, especially with the manager in Mancini, who seems to be capable of blending both of those things. Yeah, one of the things that I definitely did agree with um, the point that you made on the pod that you guys did last week was about Mancini's managerial ability compared to, I think, a lot of the other coaches at this tournament. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, we will see how Italy fare in their next two games, both of which I anticipate as being more difficult than this Turkey team. So, obviously, I missed out on last week's pod where you guys took uh, a gander at some of your, you know, players to watch, teams to watch, and potentially potential disappointments to watch. Uh, One of the teams that I actually thought would has the, has the possibility of being a dark horse in this tournament is Switzerland, who played Wales this morning in the second match in Group A, the second game in this tournament. Switzerland have been an interesting team to watch as of late. They took some really big wins. They beat Germany, or pardon me, they drew with Germany um, a little while ago, um, 3-3 in the Nations League, and they were on a seven-game winning streak coming into the Euros, including a draw with Spain as well. And... Uh, Switzerland are also a team that has sort of perpetually been around in these international tournaments, but has never really made a huge splash. And this year, it looks like they finally figured out their striker situation. I think we had joked for a long time that Switzerland consistently produced sort of mediocre strikers for the Portuguese league. But now with Brel and Bolo finally fit for one of these international tournaments, he seems like he might be the answer. And Jordan Shakiri is really given... Uh, license to roam in the cam role for this team. So they drew today with Wales. Um, they had a goal disallowed in the 85th minute for offsides. That was very, very close. Um, I'm not sure how I felt about it being reversed. But nonetheless, I think the Switzerland team, um, under Vladimir Petkovic, who's been their boss since 2014 now, so that's seven going on seven seasons, I think they could be a team to watch, again, in a group that I think they should be progressing out of. 
I think yeah, there's definitely potential for that to happen. I like I, I like the highlighted Briel and Bolo. I think his pressing stats from this game are really, really impressive. And to have someone who's gonna, you know, press from the front in an international tournament and a team like full of quality players who can capitalize on, you know, misplaced passes and uh retrieving the ball high up the pitch, that is like really, really good in a tournament like this. I was pretty disappointed in Wales, Caleb. A, play, a team that you highlighted in our uh, our, our our pre-Euro podcast. Wales Wales live, didn't live up to the, the hype that I was was giving them. But they still got a point. And so I think for them, the big match will obviously be against Turkey. Um, I think Switzerland's big match is also going to be against Turkey because it seems like Italy are just a step above the others. But yeah, I was a little disappointed in Wales. Bale did not really get that much of the ball. Dan James had a few darting runs. Moore did get a goal, but I think Joe Allen and Aaron Ramsey especially really had no answers for the midfield of Switzerland today with Xhaka and Freuler. So we'll see. Um, But I I still think they might grab a point or two or three. There's no two points. Um, (laughs) Point or three. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> having two draws at the same time. Yes. Uh, I, I still think they can get a result against Turkey, which puts them in contention for that second or third place spot in this group. But they do not seem to have the ability uh, to to repeat a 2016. So sh- first of all, shout out to Danny Ward, who is in goal for Wales today, who had not played a competitive domestic game in four years since 2017 and he was called into action to make some incredible saves in this game so i think you know shout out to the the welsh keeper but i don't think you want to be you know completely living and dying off of your goalkeeper in an international tournament like this and i agree caleb i thought wales were going to you know thrive off of counter-attacking scenarios um particularly against teams that have a bit more quality than them like switzerland do all around but i was kind of disappointed you know, the likes of, of Gareth Bale in this game. And it'll be interesting to see if they, they change up their setup going forward. I don't think the 4-3-3 is working for them exactly. I think maybe, you know, having a player like Joe Allen in there who is a little bit past his best is a bit questionable. But, you know, we'll see how they set up going forward. Yeah. And just one last point on Switzerland as well. Remo Freuler had a really excellent year, barring his one uh, shining moment against Real Madrid, which probably cost... Uh, Atalanta chance at that tie. Um, and I think he and Jaka actually form a, a pretty solid uh, midfield tandem that is, is maybe underrated by some. Um, and so, yeah, Wales, I think we're lucky to get a point. If you look at the stats in this one, they were outpossessed 64% to 36%. And the XG was 2.19 to 0.43 in favor of the Swiss, uh, which obviously doesn't even include the, the overturned goal. So Wales might have a bit more work to do. Um, than their their neutral counterparts. Group B is, I think, one of the groups that will have a lot of eyes on it. Denmark and Finland, Belgium and Russia. For once, Russia does not get the easiest group. And I think there's going to be, there are a lot of really compelling storylines in this one. You guys touched on Belgium's sort of golden generation. Is this their swan song? Is this the post-swan song for them? Uh, Finland becoming the first team to qualify for a major tournament for the first time uh, since uh, Iceland in 2016. 
And of course, Russia seemed to always be there or thereabouts. They're a very physical team that seems to really never change that much. Um, their squad it. has players who seem to have been around. Well, I mean, their squad contains players like Yuri Zhirkov, who obviously was at Chelsea when we were like, you know, before we even started middle school. And then Denmark, who Nick, you highlighted as a team to watch. Uh, so I think this is a very competitive group. And putting aside um, the what we talked about earlier with Christian Eriksen, I'm curious as to how you guys see this group shaking out because I think each team can reasonably think that they have a shot to progress, even Finland. I don't think Finland have a shot to progress here. I'm sorry. I mean, we'll see what happens with the game today that has just restarted. Uh, and I think there's obviously going to be a lot of, you know, outside circumstances that are going to play effect, uh, play an effect, at least, you know, in the state of players mentally in this group. Uh, it, it's tough. I mean, and I'll be honest, it, it is like tough to talk about this group now, but I think, you know, removing what, what happened today, I do think Belgium and Denmark have the most quality of the four teams in this group. It'll be interesting to see like who of Finland or Russia finished third and are in like, can, if, if they can get themselves into contention uh, for one of those places to move on into the, the next stage of the tournament. I think Russia are going to be nowhere near as good as they were in 2018 when they kind of were the surprise of the tournament in many ways. Uh, you huh. know, beating, beating. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Russia were playing weirdly well on home soil. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to speculate. But yeah, they, they obviously beat Spain at the last World Cup, which is a pretty famous victory for the Russian Federation. Football Federation, not the communist one. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, But yeah, I I don't think Russia have the same capability to get through. (laughs) I think, honestly, we should just move on from this group. No, wait, can I I just say one thing? (laughs) Yes. So, Denis Cheryshev is 30 years old now no he's no not way. oh my goodness that's insane wasn't he like 24 last year <laughs> dude i swear last year he was like a 23 year old getting madrid knocked out of the copa del rey because he wasn't technically registered when he played. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all i'm saying is dennis cherish he's like a cicada okay he's like a <laughs> He's a three-year cicada. He goes into some dormancy during the club season where he's just kind of like a mediocre wide player. And then he puts on this Russian kit and he goes absolutely off. So I am I, reserving judgment on Russia until after the game this afternoon because Denis Cheryshev might be metaphorically on something still. I think another player that Russia, oh my god, <laughs> I think uh, this is all alleged. By the way, allegedly, allegedly, and metaphorically, and metaphorically, allegedly. not literally though. Um, another player that we should probably highlight for Russia before we move on is Alexander Golovin, who's probably their most technical player, center attacking midfielder, can contribute both in terms of goals and assists. I think he's going to carry a lot of the a lot of the brunt of the load for this team if they are going to create th- um, create things against teams like Belgium and Denmark who have very, very competent defenses. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets on. And Alexei Moranchuk, another Atalanta player. Like, this this Russian team is not, like, totally devoid of quality, except the only people of quality are, like, the ones that don't play in the Russian league, of which they have three. So, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. 
yeah, so why don't we move on? Um, I personally think that Belgium have a really good chance at winning this tournament. And I was going to, had I been on last week's shot, I would have highlighted um, perhaps what they could do, even if their golden generation has has lapsed. But let's move on to Group C, which I think is probably the weakest group on the balance of things, um, comprising of Austria, the Netherlands, North Macedonia, and Ukraine. Uh, I'm really curious as to how this group shakes out as well. One would think that the Netherlands should go through, but as Caleb, I think, justfully said uh, last episode, Frank De Boer is quite literally the worst manager in all of world football. So all bets are sort of off for uh, the Orange. Then you have Austria, North Macedonia, and Ukraine. Ukraine have quietly been very good in the last year or two. Um, They took some bad losses in the Nations League, but are currently six matches unbeaten as well, including a draw with France. And North Macedonia are, as you guys mentioned last time, led by the ageless wonder himself, Goran Pandev, who is somehow still leading the line at 37 years of age. So if I had to put money on a team to win the group right now, for whatever reason, I would pick Austria. But again, this group is kind of chaotic, and I'm not sure how it's going to shake out. I think Austria are always a really interesting case for me because they have one of the the better defenders in the world in David Alaba, but he's just such a gifted player that he plays at like a left wing, you know, left attacking midfield position for them. And they have players like Martin Hinteringer and Alexander Dragovic who play center back for them. So Alaba is obviously going to be a key piece for them in this team. A lot of it is going to be dependent on how he performs you know, in a more advanced role, which will be interesting to watch him in, in a big spotlight like this. But yeah, Nathan, I think you're right. Ukraine could be a little bit of a surprise package in this group. I think most importantly, they're managed by Andriy Shevchenko, who is a Ukrainian legend, one of the best strikers that Europe has ever seen uh, at the elite level. And this man, if there's anybody who can galvanize you know, his national team to a result at a major tournament. It is a guy like Andriy Shevchenko. So I think Ukraine are, are, are a team to watch. Obviously, players like Alexander Zinchenko from Manchester City, Andriy Armalenko from West Ham, uh, Yaramchuk. There's a lot of, like, really interestingly and technically gifted Malinovsky. players. Malinovsky. Yeah, and also, I think it's important to note that basically their entire back four and goalie all play together with Shakhtar. So they do have, I think, a really solid base. And I think going forward with Zinchenko as a center attacking midfielder provides a little bit of a wild card um, for a team that I think is more talented than it's been since maybe 2006 or 2010 um, in Shevchenko's heyday. Yeah, I think the one thing about the Ukraine team is when you look at their like actual out and out forwards, it's not the best looking bunch. Uh, Yeremchuk, Bezyadin, and Dovbik are not, you know, players that you get especially scared of. But I do think there is something to be said for having national teams that are largely drawn from like one or two club teams because a big issue with national tournaments is always chemistry. And so anything you can carry over from the club game is a definite positive. But on this group, I tend to I tend to also have a vibe that Austria is going to finish on top. And while and then I think it'll probably be the Netherlands and Ukraine for that second spot. But I think the Netherlands are going to be a bit, you know, 
their own worst enemy in this tournament. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see them slip to that third place slot. Do we have do we have wait, do we have do we have any move do we have any thoughts on North Macedonia who, you know, beat Germany a few months ago? Um, or are we sort of just resigning ourselves to the fact that despite, you know, having Pandev up top, Ennis Bardi, Eljif Elmas, is that sort of it for them? Do you think that they will sort of falter? I mean, the El- Elmas was the player that I highlighted in our pre-Euro coverage, pre-Euro podcast. And yeah. Ennis Bardi is also one of the most underrated players in La Liga, but I just don't think they have enough squad depth at all throughout the team. To, to make much of a dent. Yeah, I think that's I think it's a very fair assumption. Uh, but Group D, moving on to Group D, there are, again, a number of great storylines. And I think there are always going to be good storylines where England is involved because, again, they tend to be the architects of their own demise um, or architects of their, uh, their own undoing. But looking at this group, you've got Croatia, the Czech Republic, England, and Scotland – Obviously, England-Scotland, big rivalry game. England-Croatia calls us back to 2018. The Czech Republic has their own sort of internal drama that we've talked about on the pod. Um, And I think all eyes are going to be on England to win this group, but it absolutely would not surprise me if Croatia come out on top. And I'm curious if you guys share that opinion. Uh, I do not. Okay. Nick, go first. Wait, so Caleb, you think Croatia are going to come out on top in the group? No, it would not surprise me oh, okay, though, okay, if okay. they did. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, you can you can give your negative argument first. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think the thing with Croatia is, I think after you know you perform so well at a tournament like Croatia did to get to the final of the 2018 World Cup, you want to see progression, right? You want to see new players being bet in to your current system, to your current team, your current setup. You want to see maybe some older players, you know, letting go of the reins a little bit. And that is certainly, you know, not the case for Croatia. Even though they've had a few players retire, like Mandzukic is retired now from international duty, I think they're still very reliant on Luka Modric, who is coming close to his 36th birthday. He's about to be, you know, officially on the quote-unquote wrong side of 30. There's a lot of players from you know, that Croatia team in 2018 that was not an especially young team uh, going into that tournament all of those years ago. Uh, I am not entirely sure that they have the gas to compete in a group with a very, very lively Scottish team and also a team with the depth of the England national team, which has, you know, its own issues and we'll get onto them. But I think Croatia just, they don't have as many pieces as they did you know, maybe in 2018. I certainly think players like Kaleta Carr, who is a really, really great center back, is an improvement on Domagoj Bida, who is their center back in the 2018 World Cup. And I think having players like Kovacic and Brozovic to play alongside Modric in midfield is certainly a plus. But is Ivan Perisic, you know, the guy you want, you know, spearheading an attack at an international tournament? I'm not so sure. Can I give, can I give my argument? Of course. Excellent. So... I think what Croatia have going for them is that they are one of the best teams in the tournament where expectations are not necessarily like you need to win the tournament. And I think playing without that pressure, really valuable. And the squad is also, I think, younger than you think. Like 
so there are several midfielders that are not on the wrong side of 30. Brozovic, Kovacic, Pasayic. Then you have players like Vlasic, who are probably one of the best players in the Russian league. And then up front, they have some really, really underrated attacking players like Andre Kramaric, who has been amazing over the past three or four years at Hoffenheim since he kind of failed at Leicester. You have someone like Ante Budimir, who was really, really good for Osasuna in La Liga last year and in fact just became Osasuna's all-time most expensive transfer for the grand total of, do you have a guess? Like eight mil? Five Seven cents. million. Seven million. <laughs> yeah, that's, that checks out. <laughs> then, then you have someone like Mislav Orsic who must, you know, haunt Harry Kane's nightmares and dreams um, <laughs> after scoring the hat trick that dumped Spurs out of the Europa League this year. So I don't know. I think this team has a lot of quality. They're not that, that old. And I think... So I think all in all, this Croatia team is still quite good, even without some of the players that left the national team set up after the World Cup. And I think they can play without like a press pressure that a team like England are going to face all the time. And they certainly have more quality than Scotland. Yeah, I think if there's one team that I am willing to write off from this group uh, pretty immediately. And I know, Nick, you brought, the, I think, Nick, you brought them up last week. But Scotland are a dire, dire team. And it's sort of to be expected when you think about what would happen if you made a team produce two really good players and had them both play left back. Um, but I actually watched them play against Israel twice, um, once in the final that sent them to this tournament and once because they were the only game on one of the international breaks back in November. But this is a team that has lost consistently to a team like Israel that has never really been even close to qualifying for the Euros, a team that just struggled to beat Luxembourg 1-0 with a full-strength starting lineup, I think that Scotland are going to get absolutely trounced. Um, and no disrespect to Scotland, because I do actually enjoy the fact that they're at this tournament. Scottish fans are great. Kieran Tierney and Andrew Robertson are very fun players to watch. In fact, Tierney is one of my favorite players in the world. But looking at their players who aren't left-backs is just really, really terrifying. Mm. I mean, I mean, that's interesting. You, would, it's interesting that you would say that, Nathan. Uh, they also just got a two-two draw against the Netherlands. It's tough to evaluate these things pre-tournament, but I think this Scottish team, if you look at any of the coverage coming out of their camp and also listening to them, you know, get prepared for this tournament, they are up for this. And I think there is something to be said for a team in an international tournament that has not had the spotlight on them for a long time, like Wales in 2016, that just play way above the level and play like way above the sum of their parts, right? And I think Scotland, you know, they could absolutely get demolished. That is true. Like Croatia and England are two teams that are, by all means, better than they are, have more quality on the ball than they do, have more established senior professionals in like the upper echelons of the game. But I also just think that you can't, in, in tournaments like these, you can't discount, you know, just passion. You know, passion gets you very, very far. So I'm, I, I, I'm caught between two minds. You know, my brain tends to agree with you that, like, they're not quite up to snuff. But also my heart thinks that they're going to perform, you know, above the level that everyone thinks. All eyes are going to be on this group because the sort of global soccer media world tends to revolve around England for a number of reasons. And I think expectations are as high for this group of England players as they have ever been. They are coming off of 
an impressive run of friendlies. They are six games unbeaten and their squad, despite including just about every right back uh, under the sun, has more talent than I think it did in 2018. Do we think that this is the year where England breaks the curse? Or do we think that, like Nick said on the last pod, that they managed to get through this group before getting absolutely eviscerated by France, Germany, or Portugal? I think I've given my thoughts, so I'll let you and Caleb take this one. I think I've given my thoughts also, but I, I tend to agree with Nick. I think they'll do fine in the group and then get a little bit destroyed in the round of 16. Yeah, I think that's a consensus here. I thought England, well, I think England sort of got away with their performances in 2018 as much as I know England fans really um, sort of clung to those performances. No, I mean, they had an um, easy run to the semifinal. I'll be yeah, honest. They had, an, they had an easy run to the semifinal. They also didn't play particularly well. You know, Harry Kane was scoring lots of penalties. You know, they were, they, they were, I don't know. I have less faith in England than I think most people do. I have extremely low faith in Southgate as a coach. I especially struggle to understand his um, insistence at playing two center defensive midfielders in this team setup. Uh, so I think that England finish first or second in this group and then proceed to get smoked by the winner of group F who we will Here move is on the to thing, in a second. Here is the thing though. If they win their round of 16 game, I think the probability of them winning the tournament goes up really dramatically. Like I think that's the hump for them pretty clearly. Yeah, I think I, I can agree with that. And I also think that, um, you know, England do have a bit of a, a clutch gene to them in recent times, you know, I think a lot of it also depends on whether Raheem Sterling can kick into gear. I think in a city team that did quite well, he had a, a lesser campaign than many would have um, expected of him. So I don't know. I think they have an incredibly high ceiling, but also an incredibly low floor, depending on, you know, how their morale is in this through this group stage. Well, it came out today that or reported that Gareth Southgate's position is not under any threat even if, you know, a disaster happens in this tournament and they even, like, go out in the group stage or something, which I think is highly unlikely. But even if they don't make it to, like, the semifinals, I would expect him to be the manager for 2022 and perhaps beyond, which says, you know, a lot about, I think, I think, okay, so the thing I think Gareth Southgate has been tremendous at, and, tremend like, tremendous is the word to use. I think he's been elite in this capacity, is that in 2016, the morale of the England national team following, you know, the previous Euros that we had, was at an all-time low. Morale had totally bottomed out under Roy Hodgson. They it had bo it bottomed out even more following you know the controversy that happened with Sam Allardyce. And Gareth Southgate, to his credit, has created an incredible culture surrounding the England national team, where everyone you know seems to be getting on really well. The chemistry seems to be really electric coming out of that camp. You can see like all of these players really really care about doing well for the national team and everyone comes from, you know, vastly different backgrounds. You have players who have like come up, worked their way up through the pyramid system, like Calvin Phillips players who come from prestigious academies like Mason Mount and all those players are jiving, you know, under one system, under one culture, you know, fostered by Gareth Southgate, excuse me, fostered by Gareth Southgate, who I think really has like done a very, very good job at navigating, you know, a really treacherous, at least position for media wise, uh, which is the England, you know, manager seat. So I think that that is like to his credit, something that he can, 
you know, maybe hang his hat on in the fact that like if the chips are down, he can always like I think he he knows how to galvanize this team to push them to where they need to go. It's if like the tactical side of that matches up, like Nathan was saying. Shall we move on to I think the most straightforward group of them all, group E? This group contains Poland, Slovakia, Spain, and Sweden. I think that this group is obviously incredibly favorable for the likes of Spain and Poland. And I think a huge test for teams like Slovakia and Sweden, who should be battling it out for that third spot. And I think importantly, it'll let Spain get into a little bit of rhythm. I sort of mentioned them as my dark horse team two podcasts ago. But do we see a situation in where a team that isn't Spain or Poland come out on top of this group? I mean, I think Sweden could come through in second. I'm not sure Poland are as strong as you're indicating. Really? Yeah, I'm not I'm not super convinced by Poland. You know, they've only won one game in their last five. Sweden have won all five games in their last five. I think Sweden have, you know, a better squad overall. Uh, I think you can even see, like, at the back, the only really standout name that Poland has is Kemil Glick. And he's, you know... I mean, Jan Bednarek. Jan Bednarek, he's not fantastic. You know, he's, he's part of a Southampton team that has one of the worst defensive records in the Premier League this season. I am not super convinced by this Poland team, even with Robert Lewandowski uh, at the front, as he usually is. And players like Zielinski, who I think is a really great player in Serie A, but I don't know if he's, you know, if those two guys are good enough to propel this team into, you know, automatic qualification out of this group. I think Sweden are really, really uh, all around great team, as demonstrated by their performance at the 2018 World Cup, where I think they, they overperformed in expectations. See, I think I would agree with you more, and I think this group would be a lot more complicated if Sweden were able to bring Zlatan to this tournament, but obviously injury has ruled him out. But I think without someone like that, I do think Sweden do have, like, or tend to have less quality than Poland. Um, it's, but, Isak and Kuliszewski is still a pretty good front two, though. Yeah, but they're both, they're both quite, quite young, to, to lead the line themselves compared to Lewandowski. Right. Right, for Poland. And I think Ibra would have been, in a weird way, even though he's often a divisive person, I think he's embraced the role as, like, the glue guy or, like, the father figure for Milan this year and would have helped rear some of these young players into a tournament like this. Um, but absent that, I think I think Poland are, are just better. And I think Spain do win this group despite yes. the, the whole COVID thing. Uh, but now they're being vaccinated. Um, a little too little too late, but yep. <laughs> so it goes. Yeah, I mean, I think Spain pretty obviously go through here, and the questions will arise, I think, in the latter stage of this tournament about how how good this team really is or if they're just playing above the sum of their parts under Lucho Enrique. But I think they'll, they'll coast through the group stage. I think this team has far and away the most quality out of anyone in this group. Yes, I would agree. Shall we? Tri- I think that the group that everyone sort of has hyper fixated on since the draw was announced, and rightfully so, is Group F. We mentioned it um, on both of the last two podcasts, but it really is just absurd uh, how much talent is in this group. Um, France, Germany, Hungary, and Portugal. You've got the defending world champions from 2018, the world champions from 2014 a team that has one of the three best players of all time on it in Portugal and then Hungary, who I think are a good, a better team than you would expect from the fourth best team in this group. 
I agree with the what you guys said on the last pod. I think it is France and Portugal who wind up going through. But again, France is going to go through and win this tournament, in my opinion. Um, and Germany and Portugal are going to be battling for that second and third spot. Yeah, I don't think there's been a group of death that has had like a very clear favorite before, or at least not that I can remember. I think France are very obviously the favorites here. And I honestly think, you know, their first game is against Germany. I think that game could really be a statement victory for France in this tournament in the same way that Italy had a statement victory yesterday. I think Germany are actually in like a pretty worse situation than a lot of people realize. And I think they're pretty desperate for Hansi Flick to come in and sort of salvage that situation or, you know, turn around that situation, bring bring a set of new eyes uh, to that coaching role. And I, I think this team might just bottom out under Yogi Lowe in this tournament. You know, morale probably isn't phenomenal. I'm not sure, like, he's getting the best out of all of his players, playing this really wacky three-at-the-back formation, uh, not playing players in their correct positions. I don't know. I'm not super confident in this German team, Caleb, but I think they could get pumped by France come Tuesday. Yeah, Nathan, I think you, you made a good point when you said, or was I one of you, whoever said that it's unusual to have a group of death where there's also a clear favorite. That was me. Which was, okay, Nick which I think is true, and I think that's just a testament to just how good this France team is. See, it's so hard when I look at this German team because there is just so much quality back to front that it's just, just a little shocking how they've had such, such poor results over the past few years, or even somewhat recently, like when they lost, what was it, 5-0 to Spain? 6-0. Was it 6-0? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Um it wasn't even a year ago. It was like it eight months ago. No, that's what I mean. So I, I think I, I am also tempted to just say that Portugal are going to slide. In. And I think especially if France dominate Germany in the first game and Portugal can get a big win over Hungary, it puts Germany on such a back foot in the next two games that it'll be hard for them to recover. But I think the France, or sorry, the Germany-Portugal game will be ultimately like the deciding game for this group because I'm not concerned about France at all. And Hungary, while they have a few quality players, really are just here for the ride, um, honestly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think, again, there are just so many marquee matchups to be made. France and Germany have a huge rival, a huge rivalry rather, both geopolitical and on the pitch. And it's very interesting. I mean, even if France drop one of these games to Germany or Portugal, and if they finish in second in this group, I still think that they go through and win this tournament. That's just how deep their team is right now. It's pretty obscene. And you guys mentioned the the U21 team that they have uh, last time as well. France is really positioned to dominate the world, at least on the soccer stage for the next 10 years. And I think that is uh, very scary. But at the very least, their team is just so fun to watch. Um, and I think all eyes will be on Le Bleu in a few days. Here's the thing. They are very fun to watch. But when it comes to like getting results at international tournaments, they're super pragmatic about it, too, sometimes. Like, you remember in like the 2018 World Cup, they were getting like 1-0 or 2-0 results. And they're really focusing on grinding out at the end of some of those games. So if, if they need to, like they can grind out results against really elite opposition. Or they can just blow teams away. Like, it really yeah, just depends, think- depends on like what mood they're in. Yeah, I think this team is set up 
slightly less pragmatically than prior teams. Because before it was like they were playing like Matuidi or Sissoko as one of the wide midfielders and leaving, you know, one of the more flair wingers on the bench. But this time it seems like they're really going for it, attacking in a way that we haven't seen before. But they still have Sissoko um, who can sort of be a bit more solid. But I think this team is kind of grown into its role as the world champions and they're kind of done, you know, playing it safe. Um, and so hopefully we get some more good goals in this tournament. Yeah, I agree with Caleb. The handbrake, the, the handbrake is well and truly off, and that is indicated by the fact that Benzema is back in this team. So I think there's a lot of promise to this tournament. Uh, obviously, we will continue to have coverage of it over the next couple of weeks as it plays out across Europe. Um, yeah, I, I can I mean, all... that we are going to be bringing on, I think, I don't want to call him our England correspondent. I don't know if he would appreciate that label, but the composer of the Corner Kick theme song, William Hattel, is British and a massive Three Lions fan. So we're going to have him on the podcast at some point to talk about you know, his expectations for England in this tournament. If you didn't get enough of our England chat in this episode. Absolutely. And also, it has only taken nine minutes, but Romelu Lukaku has scored for Belgium, <laughs> and they lead one nothing over Russia. And in slightly less happy news, Denmark has just missed a penalty. It is still one nothing Finland uh, in the 75th minute now in Copenhagen. Guys, I, this is just how tired I am right now. I, I opened up one of my soccer apps to look at the Belgium-Russia game, and it said that there was an injury break for Dmitry Barnov, but I read it instinctively as Dimitar Berbatov and was very confused <laughs> for a second. <laughs> he could play up top with Goran Pandev. <laughs> Wait, I wish we could make like an all 35 plus team. Like a 35 yeah, dude. to 45. We'll do that at the end of the tournament because I'm sure we okay. could. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd be interested in doing that as well. I think that'd be fun. Cool. It's like the last hurrah, XI. Oh, remember that? Uh, remember that Hungarian goalie who would always wear the like long pants? Who was like yeah. 40, 42 or whatever? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, he wore like sweatpants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the in 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 Euro twenty sixteen. Oh, dude, that guy was a legend. Dude, him and him and Will Grigg were really the MVPs. Dude, of dude Will Grigg. Will Grigg's on fire. Well, Will Grigg is on fire, your defense is terrified, and we are terrified because this podcast is coming to a conclusion. <laughs> well, I don't know why we have to be terrified about that, but we are, because we enjoy talking to all of you. Um, we're going to come back in a few days. We wanted to talk about Copa America on this podcast, but obviously uh, other circumstances got in the way uh, with the news about Christian Erickson. We are glad to hear that he seems to be okay and responsive. He seems to have been able to talk to his teammates and his father, some members of his family from the hospital, which is really, really good news. It's nice to be able to end this podcast with some assurances on that front. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, we hope Christian gets well. Uh, we hope everyone has a phenomenal tournament. We hope we can see this tournament kick on. It can be a really great event going forward from today. And with that being said, I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Reds, Nathan Saras, and we will see you all next time.